Elixir Talk is brought to you by Crivalli, an Elixir training and development firm run by me, your Elixir Talk co-host, Desmond Bowie. If your team is adopting Elixir and would like hands-on expert guidance, we can skill you up and make sure you're building things properly. To learn more, visit us at crivalli.io or email me at desmond at crivalli.io. That's D-E-S-M-O-N-D at C-R-E-V-A-L-L-E dot I-O. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie and I am here with my co-host Chris Bell. Hey Desmond, how's how's it going? Hi Chris, what's happening? Uh, not so much. How's things over there? <laughs> Should we just spend the podcast asking each other how I it's know, going? I know, just back and forth. I'm sure people would love that. Well, I've been... Um, a little busy recently with a f- uh, the aftermath of MPEX LA a couple weeks ago, which um, went off pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I was there as well. It was it was a great conference. Yeah, and you gave a great talk. Um, for those of you that weren't able to attend, this was the first MPEX conference we had in Los Angeles. Uh, planned it on sort of short notice, and it ended up coming off really well. We had a really strong. Uh, list of speakers and we found another great venue um, some more live music of course a new neon sign and um, pretty pretty solid turnout had some great sponsorships from uh, carbon 5 and grinder and um, pretty good conference you know it's always a little nerve-wracking having these first elixir conferences off the ground you probably remember the first year in, in new york when we did mpex wondering uh, how it was going to go. Yeah, but I, I think uh, you and the team over there did a really good job. Um, the speaker lineup was great, uh, obviously excluding me, but I think... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to speak about myself, that's weird. But I, I, I thought you had a pretty good talk. Yeah, I think it went down well. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed some of the other speakers. I think the the range of talks that we that you, uh, that you got with, was really great. Um, mm-hmm. Some key things come to my mind that people should check out um i really enjoyed emma's keynote in the morning um which Mm -hmm. is just all about kind of why elixir and lots of the um the reasons why it's a great language um and really really enjoyed andrew howe's uh talk about uh context in phoenix as well that was fantastic um and mapping to domain driven design um and the closing keynote from sarah was just so good and so funny yeah. as well just yeah 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 she was a great speaker and we were very happy to have her there um i also really liked will's talk about modeling ant behavior using gen servers yeah, that was really cool yeah he um apparently you can simulate ant brains with like a couple of lines of code because ant brains are pretty straightforward and so he would simulate a colony of ants by spinning up a gen server for each ant and giving it these rules and then he would have a um it was like a chess board with some food on it and the ants would fan out across the board and find the like discover the food and then leave pheromone trails to tell their ant buddies where to find it and he had this great visualization of uh, this behavior and um it was interesting to watch and i think it's a, a great use case for 
gen servers and spinning up a bunch of processes. Definitely, yeah. Um, if you haven't done much like process-driven design kind of stuff and processes in Elixir, I think that's a really, really good thing to watch and see how Will approaches the problem. It was, uh, and uh, oh, and he had that amazing joke about how um, it was a pheromone rather than a smell. Do you remember? <laughs> a code pheromone instead of a code smell. Yeah, it was. Yeah, bang on. Good job, Will. Hopefully, you're listening. That was. Uh, a plus plus. Cheers to you. Well, um, if any of you listeners want to catch some of these awesome talks, they're up on our YouTube channel. Um, if you go on YouTube and search for MPEX, uh, you'll see the list of LA talks up there. Um, we'll probably also link to them in the show notes, but all the talks are up. They're great. Uh, please check them out. Did you have any other highlights from the day? Other highlights? I thought the panels were fun. Yeah, the panels were cool. It was... Uh... So there's two panels, one on adoption and one one on deployment, right? Yeah, the thinking was that those were two subjects where uh, your mileage may vary, and we didn't want to have one speaker talking about their one experience for 20 minutes that may not be relevant to you, the listener. We thought, well, what if we had a couple of points of view in a shorter period of time to show you options? And um, we got some mixed reviews on it. Uh, I thought it was a fun way to play with those particular topics, which I think lend well to the multiple points of view. And um, a couple of people who were on the panels have spoken at MPEX before, you know, friends of the of the conference, and it was good to have them back. So we'll see how that goes next time. Um, but it was certainly fun, I think, fun addition. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I like the panel format. I think, uh, I think having like a mixed group of people as well is a really good way to kind of get those different points of view and actually dig into how different people are doing things. Um, I, th I think it was pretty good. I um, I, I don't know. I, I think I've seen it go badly, but like I felt like um, you, got, you and the team did a really good job there. Thanks, thanks. If any of you uh, missed it and are looking for more MPEX fun, there's a New York MPEX conference coming up on May 19th, which Chris and the crew are working on now. Yes, that's right. Uh, our CFP is actually open right now until the 15th of March. So uh, hopefully by the time this episode comes out, you've still got a little bit of time to get a talk in. Um, we're obviously looking for any kind of, any range of speakers, if it's your first time, if you've done it before, whatever, if you've got something interesting to say about Elixir or something tangentially related to Elixir, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, a, uh, if you're speaking at MPEX, then you get a free ride to the conference, invited to our fancy speakers dinner the night beforehand. And um, massages in the back room? No, we decided against massages. <laughs> I, I mean, I would like to have the massages in the back room. I think that would be a nice touch. Just I think, you know, once it gets to mid-afternoon, your feet are kind of sore, you've been walking around all day, you know, I think it'd be nice to take some of the pressure off. Definitely. We should uh, we should see if we can allocate some budget to that. Yeah, TBD, TBD. But, uh, <laughs> no promises. Don't take, don't take the chance. Submit your talk, and um, if it works, great. Definitely. And uh, if you're not going to speak, but you're interested in coming to the conference, uh, we have early bird tickets available. There will be a limited run of those starting um, very soon. Hopefully, by the time this is out as well, there will still be some early bird tickets left. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a fantastic day of talks. We're going to have a training the day before. Um, and then we're hopefully going to do a little something New York-y on the Sunday. So TBD on that as well. But yeah. 
Cool. Sounds awesome. Yeah, we're we're all very excited to do another MPEX NYC in our yeah. in our favorite jazz club venue. So <laughs> should be good. Yeah, it's sweet. It's sweet. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of sweet, what's up with Elixir Talk? What's on the dock today? <laughs> speaking of sweet, nice segue. Just really, really smooth, <laughs> man. Um, so, I mean, we've had a few more questions in from the community. Uh, I think we were going to touch a little bit on uh, this first question here uh, around authorization and authentication in Phoenix projects, um, opened by Mario Zig, uh, like in January. But we're, we, you know, we have a bit of a backlog of questions. But let's let's dig into this. Um, so Mario asks. Uh, it sounds like. Both of you have some experience with Phoenix, and I'd love to hear how and what you guys are doing for both authentication and authorization. Um, it would be interesting to hear beyond just a drop, uh, drop-in library name, um, but more experiences you've had, limitations and features, etc. Um, so, Desmond, do you wanna do you wanna dig into that? Sure. So, I have done a little bit with uh, Phoenix and authorizations um, and authentications. Um, I usually prefer a simple home rolled uh, sign in password. You get uh, like a password hash or some sort of token that gets stored in your session, and then you re authenticate with every request. Did you say ha- had- home rolled? Ho- home rolled. <laughs> home rolled. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Um. Yeah, depending on the security needs. If it's a smaller project, then. I'll do this. If there's like particular security requirements, we might do something more robust. But mm-hmm. I find it easy enough to spin up these solutions, which uh, just involves a couple of plugs. Really, um, create a plug that uh, takes the request and pulls out the cookie of the session or however you're storing it, um, and we'll handle things like invalidation and uh, and reauthentication and redirection to a login page. And I'll put those plugs in my router and um, use the pipeline, uh, use a router pipeline to say, well, these these routes should be off, these controllers should be off. And uh, it makes for a pretty clean implementation. The controllers generally don't have to worry about um, who's getting in. And, um, and a plug is kind of a great way to segment that logic and to keep that out of the rest of it. As for authorization, uh, you can do that in a router. I tend to do that more at the controller level mm-hmm. um, because you might need more fine-grained control. And then I would pass uh, a role or the, the action down into um, the business layer, like the service the service layer, and let that sort out who's al- is this user allowed to do this action. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my experience has been somewhat similar. Um, I think that we... I've been a big fan of Guardian, uh, which is a library that does a lot of the authentication logic for you. Um, And effectively, Guardian's job is given a resource, generate um, some kind of token from it. And typically, that token implementation is a JWT. It doesn't have to be. You can do more stateful tokens as well. Um, But yeah, we use Guardian all over the place and then just basically do a lot of what Desmond's talking about here where uh, you break a lot of the, the logic into plugs that handle all of the like, can I load the resource? Um, 
is that user actually present? Guardian actually out of the box comes with all of these plugs that you can just drop into your app, um, into a pipeline, and allows you to just get up and going. Um, I, I think like typically what we see is that we have to do a little bit of extension on top of Guardian to, f to fit some of the like the non-standard use cases. Uh, I'd say if you're doing more of like an API driven approach and you want to do authentication at that layer, um, Guardian, you can do most of it in Guardian and we've had to do a couple of little things around the edges. But yeah, generally it's very, very simple, like giving a user, sign it and generate a token off of it. Do you find though that with these out of the box solutions, um, like I remember the days of devising CanCan on Rails, like you get this big solution and it ends up getting bigger and bigger to accommodate more and more use cases. Mm. But your use case is always slightly different. And then you end up really having to hack at this thing to get it to do what you want. Yeah, I, I mean, I've definitely seen that in Devise land. Um, I, I, I guess like for me, the last time I did a, a like an actual server side rendered kind of login experience was a long time ago. Like most of the things that we've been doing now are more like API driven logins. Um, mm -hmm. And I find that the login code itself is fairly simplistic, right? Like just pass an email and a password over to someone else. And yeah, I guess there is a load of plumbing around the edges you have to do. Like the forgotten password stuff is always a pain. Making sure yeah. you've like done it in a secure way where it's tokenized and then making sure that you can reset those tokens and various things like that. I think that's where like using a library um, for you, you get so much of that, right? Like you could just drop that in. But um, I know that I, I've had the same experience though. So, like, you use device to a point and then you're like, in the end, you're like basically rewriting all of the device controller methods because you needed to do something and you couldn't do it in a hook that they provided. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, I I haven't done the just like the classic login um, password stuff with Guardian um, in, in terms of like it generating views for you and stuff like that. I, I feel like it's the views that are the things that you always need to change. But the actual like base logic of just signing in is is fairly straightforward, you know? Yeah, I had a project recently where I used um, Google OAuth. Uh, okay. And it was a total pain in the ass. Um, Did you use the Guardian, um, the UberAuth thing that comes? Yeah, yeah. and it didn't really work. Um, I had to play with it a little bit. Like, the response I came back was not quite what the library was expecting. So I had to dig into Google's documentation and uh, the library's documentation and ended up making a um, not entirely custom solution, but I had to write a lot of the logic myself around, oh, now I have this secret, now I have to pass back to get this token, and but it, the shape of the data looks like this, and oh, I have to re-authenticate this or renew the token um, every so often, so then... I also have to manually store the uh, like the refresh token mm. um, and make sure that gets passed in. And um, it was a little tricky to to get the um, to get that working because you had to authenticate uh, every request. I was hitting the Google Calendar API, and so every time I would want to get data for a user, I would have to wrap that in a call around like has this token expired right and if so go about and refresh it so it was it was a little tricky getting the um getting that wired up properly so that my app code was not littered with authentication code mm -hmm. yeah I, i've um 
I've used a similar API where those like you have short-lived uh, auth tokens and you need a refresh token to constantly regen it. But you can mm-hmm. you can kind of push those to the edges of the system, right? Like it sounds like that's what you were you were trying to do there as well. Yeah, um, the solution I came up with worked. Again, it it still felt weird because all of my API calls uh, had to have this refresh stuff in it. Which I mean, I don't I don't know what other way there is. Mm. Um, but it still feels like you're mixing up your app's authorization with like an external authorization. Right. But maybe those two are the same thing, and I was approaching it the wrong way. So, uh, so that that was built on top of Uber Auth, right? Or Uber Auth, yeah. I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know how. It's I never, I, I never know how to say it. We'll um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But effectively, um, what that is is a generalization over auth- authentication uh, in Elixir that's built on top of Plug. Um, and if if there's any Rubyists in the audience, you might have uh, been familiar previously with Warden, which is a system that generalized authentication in Ruby as well um, for rack-based applications. And uh, UberAuth is very similar. And then basically mm-hmm. on top of that, there's a load of different implementations of uh, different strategies. So the one that uh, Desmond's referring to is the Google one where you're authenticating with Google's OAuth 2 uh, strategy. Um, but they, they, it comes out of the box with like Facebook one, GitHub one, you know, all the common ones that you might need, um, Slack, just yeah, a bunch of different things. So you have mm-hmm. easy ways to kind of plug in these uh, these different authentication mechanisms onto your app, um, and it it doesn't really do the whole like device generate all the views for you. Uh, I'm sure there's probably an extension that does do that. And I'm sure there's like 15 other libraries as well. Like, I feel like authentication is one of those things that seems to get re-implemented a lot. Um, yeah. But I, for, uh, for us, we just use like the straight up Guardian stuff. And then we've, we've got a little bit of an extension that plugs in with the Google OAuth things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've had no problems with it, honestly. I haven't had the same trouble that it sounds like you had just then. Um, so do you keep that um you keep all of your authorization at the web layer? Is your web app is your Phoenix app a separate OTP app? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So all of that authorization like what we do is we we think of authentication in that sense as being at the web layer and then we have some internal services that actually do the validation like given an email and a password validate this user. Um mm-hmm. but uh, the plugs call into those services to then do the validation steps. Um, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah. So the dependency is your web layer is depending on the business logic. Yes, exactly. And so, so it's already talking to that anyway. Yeah, exactly. So like, we try and keep the web layer nice and thin and try and keep all of its area of concern to be everything to do with web requests and whatever mm-hmm. that might look like. So uh, in this example, it would be given a bunch of headers or something coming in, take that, turn it into a user, and validate it, right? So that all lives at that web layer and then calls into those services so we mm-hmm. can do all the, the other authentication logic. Uh, Have you thought about putting some of that stuff in a separate OTP app? I, I think we both worked on that app where we tried to do that. Do you remember uh, in one of our uh-huh. customer apps that we both worked on together, naming no names? Um, we... Uh, we ended up with that separate auth app that was basically a bunch of raw plugs that did all of this like crazy logic for mapping people back to routes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how yeah. well that works. Can you remember? Um, I don't think it worked that well. 
And I think one of the challenges was that uh, once you were in the system, uh, your user role mattered quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, In this application, there were, I think, four or five different types of of users, internal users and and external users, um, and different types of internal users. And like the app very heavily depended on who was doing what. And so it just felt like a lot of the, the business code was always tied up around who you were and what you were doing. And right. um, having it as a separate application, like then, then it didn't often know everything it needed to know to make a decision around, is this person allowed to do something? Mm-hmm. And so our dependency started to get a little little hairy. But that, that part to me is the authorization logic though, right? Like can this, can this uh, entity do this thing? Like can this yeah, entity... the authentication piece. Yeah. Sorry, the authentication piece was um, more straightforward because yeah, we dealt with that at the boundary of the web layer. Right. But uh, I, I think it's really interesting to think about the authorization logic layer as well. Like, uh, I think unless you model it well, authorization can leak into every single part of your app. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that it's really annoying when you see it like that. When it's like, yeah. if it's this kind of user, then execute this and. Or like, or early return if it's this kind of user or something. Like thinking about systems I've worked on before, but um, what we tried to do at Frame is basically uh, we separated out all of our authorization into separate kind of modules that just had a can method on it. it like we've all used like the can can kind of stuff. Um, but what I didn't like with lots of those implementations was that they felt very very tightly coupled to the web layer. And what we tried to do in our version of it is basically say that we have a load of uh, authorization modules that accept a user, a resource, and then an action in a very standard mm-hmm. kind of can fashion, um, and then just return a Boolean. But the glue logic that binds that to the web layer is completely separate. Mm-hmm. So our, what we have in our controller actions is basically um, we have a plug function at the top that will say, uh, like load and authorize this resource but inside of there you pass it the authorization policy that you want to authorize against so there's not this like weird magic coupling between that thing and something else um, and in the same way I, I, I've seen lots and lots of these libraries and they all seem to depend on Ecto as well they make assumptions about how you load your data and I, yeah. I really don't like that I think it's like I think it's I think it's bad practice to try and couple your Phoenix application so explicitly to your database at that point. Um, and we would rather go through all of our services to load that data because we have a set of, like, there's there's like access rules around how you get that data out, right? Like, if something's deleted, it shouldn't be there and lots of things like that. And otherwise, you're like, you're effectively trying to push all of that up to the controller level. Um, and then you end up duplicating a lot of that logic. So. The way I wrote these authorization um, plugs was it takes like a loader function that gets params passed into it. So there's it, there's still like, it still has to know about the incoming param on the URL to say it's like an ID of a, a resource. And then it passes that ID to this loader. And then we have, an, um, we have this like policy uh, module that gets passed to it as well. And then it, there's like a really simple plug bit of code that just glues all this stuff together and then just um, if it returns false in the authorization step or it can't find a resource it will error out and it's mm-hmm. I'll, I'll see if I can put it in a gist because um, 
I felt like the code was fairly clean, and it, it, I, it to me, it felt like I, it nicely decoupled all of these ideas. But it seems like it would be pretty easy to leverage uh, function pattern matching in one of these resource modules. Yeah, you uh, uh, you mean in the authorization step? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so say, can 100%. this person do that? Yeah. Yeah, we, we do that all over the place where it's like, oh, if it's the owner of this thing and you can just like pattern match in the function head and be like, cool, done, you know? Mm-hmm. But then but then there's more complex cases as well, right? Like where you're like, oh, um, I need to check the role against this other thing and I need to traverse up the like the tree or whatever, load some other resources, check it all out and then make an, a decision off of that. Um, mm-hmm. But the nice thing about having your authorization nice and separate is it can be tested in isolation. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful concept where obviously you still want integration tests to verify like top to bottom, like if I'm this kind of user, I still can or can't do that action. But we put all of the very, very complex kind of logic of uh, like, can this person do this thing? Let's test that in isolation. And then if, if anything ever happens, you know, all of those tests blow up first feels like if it felt nice to have it like that Mm -hmm. and and they can be like fairly straightforward tests as well like you don't actually have to insert into a db to make some of those assumptions you know you could have um you could just create like mock mock data structures and pass them in yeah that sounds super convenient yeah yeah i I don't know i'll I'll see if i can put that gist together and share it because um I've been thinking about trying to extract that into a library, and I know there's a lot of these kind of authorization libraries out there. Um, <laughs> I just wasn't happy with any of them, which is such bike shedding, but uh, I also, it, it mattered to us as well. What's that joke about uh, the situation being that there are 14 standards? Right. And then someone saying, we'll just create a new one to unify them all. And the situation <laughs> is there are 15 standards. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, think I mean, that was XKCD. But I, I think it's something that you, you know, if you're mapping your domain kind of model, I think authorization is a really important point in there where um, naturally you will have these access patterns where someone can do something and someone else can't do something, you know? Mm-hmm. So try and move that out and try and have it somewhere where you can test it. I think that's a, that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Um, yeah, let's let's go on to the next question. So, pretty solid question there. Yeah, that was a great one. Thank you, Mario, for that. Um, so the next question that we have is about higher level app patterns. So it comes from uh, Cloud Eight Four Two One on GitHub. Um, so he says a sufficiently complex Elixir project tends to end up including multiple apps, maybe under an umbrella, shared code, domain-specific metrics, logging, and middleware. In addition, people also tend to wrap some frequent dependencies, e.g. brokers like RabbitMQ, with custom higher-level APIs. I've been wondering for a while if there are reusable higher-level components hidden in all of this. Uh, the counterpoint would be that, uh, that as they always slightly differ from project to project, trying to generalize them may end up being just a waste of time. So the question here is like, uh, it also expands to what's our experience on it, where do you draw the line, and how often do you extract and package, and not necessarily as open source. So, uh, I, I mean, I can kick this off and talk about, um, we uh, we definitely have a bunch of like shared dependencies in our app. Um, so, 
and that kind of shared modules and patterns that we started to use. Um, and for us, they're all inside of an umbrella, so we kind of keep them in a in an application where we can reuse them across lots of our apps. Um, but th these are really specific things to our problem domain, and I, I, I wouldn't see us ever open sourcing them, but I do think that it's worthwhile us pushing them into shared kind of um, shared pieces of functionality that, like one example of that for me is like, we have a bunch of plugs um, that do some very specific kind of uh, like checks against the environment you're on and like we have some things that shouldn't ever de be deployed and we run those in plugs and make sure that like uh, it checks against a bunch of environment variables and stuff like that. that, that they, they would benefit no one from being open source, but they're very, very important to us across lots of our applications. Um, so for me, that's something that we would always push into a shared library um, and try and reuse wherever possible. And the nice thing, obviously, about umbrella apps there is like we can just put that in a separate app, um, add a dependency on it in all of our other applications, and then we just have the code there. I think that they're, generally speaking, are not reusable higher level components hidden in this. I think um, I think the bottom line is, and we sort of touched on this uh, the last topic with these um, authentication libraries, is that it's easy to get 85 or 90 percent of the way there, but that last 10 percent like is your application, and um, I think one of the one of the patterns in the Elixir community is uh, where in the in the past we may have reached for an off-the-shelf library uh, that does the thing for us and then spending time learning how the library works, uh, perhaps customizing it to do just what we want. Um, we kind of write our own solutions because mm -hmm. uh, the external API in question is not that complicated. Um, Elixir gives us great tools for working with data, for, for changing data, um, and for reusing these functions that do change data. And so um, we tend to roll our own, and I think we strike a pretty good balance with it. Um, when I was working in Clojure years ago, I felt that they were too far in the direction of, well, just build all the tools yourself from the ground up and bolt them all together. And I, I really prefer Elixir's balance on, on that in terms of what libraries the community provides and what, uh, what you should kind of roll your own. So my, um, my company, Crevalli, has uh, internal products that we um, release as a single umbrella app. And there I've extracted some uh, shared functionality into a higher level component. But that's that's much more clearly defined. Like mm -hmm. it, it became super obvious that I wanna upload pictures to S3 from several different applications. I've already written this upload code. Um, I've already written this resize code. Like it's very straightforward for me to reuse that uh, logic. Things like metrics, I think, falls on the other side of that, where different apps need to instrument different things, and where you can say, well, here's some common stats around controller response times, and maybe you're doing some tracing. Like The language and Phoenix already has hooks into, um, into code points for that purpose, and I think that's about as far as you can go. Um, so, I lean, I lean more on just kind of rewrite it yourself and let the software fit your use case like a glove. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think uh, on my team, we've got a lot of mileage out of kind of some of the lower level uh, 
libraries that we can then piece together to do very specific things for our use cases. Um, I'm thinking about like the, the monitoring one that you just brought up there is a really good example for me. Like we track some very particular metrics um, and we're able to do that very easily with these lower level libraries that we can compose into something a bit higher level that we can then share across all of our applications. Um, but it's very suited for our use case. So I, I actually like, I really like the fact that, you know, people are shipping these like kind of lower level libraries and you can you can make new things out of them if you need to. Um, mm -hmm. Just, I think like just over the last few weeks, we, uh, we needed something for Elasticsearch um, and we didn't find a higher level library that really fit our use case well. Um, everything felt very like, it felt very modeled and tailored to how that person would try and do it. Um, so we, we opted for something lower level, wrote very kind of small macros on top of it, and then we've got something that felt right for for us, you know? Um, I, I guess the danger of that is like, we end up, you go from code base to code base and you're like, well, there's very specific patterns here, but like, but maybe that's just your software, you know? And then maybe yeah. that's exactly what it should be. So. Yeah. I, I'm kind of okay with it. Um, I wouldn't want to write too many of the lower level things myself, especially as it pertains to like, uh, I don't know, like I, I think about like a StatsD protocol or something like that, you know, like Your security something. Yeah, like I think there's a bunch of stuff where it's like, like let's depend on those lower level libraries and let's build things that are specific for us on top and let's contribute back to those lower level libraries and make sure that we're building this great ecosystem because as you said before like we wouldn't want to just be rolling all of this stuff ourselves all the time yeah and i think that one of the i mean one of the values of the community is preferring explicit over implicit mm -hmm. uh code and patterns and i think in the case of say middleware i think there there's always that urge to well how can we find this like higher level abstraction here and and make a bunch of implicit uh assumptions that our client code will use and that's kind of not how we do things here yeah and um i think it's okay and i think the f the first reaction is oh well it seems like a lot of work it seems so it seems like drudge work um but then you come back to it in two weeks and it's very easy to understand and it's much more tailored to what you're doing and it's a better fit. Mm -hmm. And I think this also dovetails into conversations we've had about design patterns um, in general in a functional language where you don't have a command pattern, a visitor pattern, a builder pattern, and, and these sort of object-oriented hangovers. You just have functions and data and just as um, I think you find modules and contexts as they bubble up naturally from, oh, it seems like these functions kind of go together. Okay, well now we'll create a separate module. We seem to have uh, discovered a new concern. You know, this thing is, is incontrovertible, deserves its own, um, its own module, its own application. In the same way, I think you'll know when your patterns, whether they are for logging middleware or shared library code, have reached like a level of, of self-sufficiency and self-containment that they are already kind of their own concern and you just have to gather them together and ship them off. Um, I don't think you have to worry about getting ahead of that. I think you can just relax and let them arise naturally. Mm, no, definitely. I, I think about, I mean, I guess like we do have some kind of higher level patterns that we use day to day, like 
more like an Ecto, uh, and I guess to an extent a Phoenix in some ways, although we're still building a lot on top of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's like any, I don't think like in my experience of building um, kind of umbrella apps and like apps with lots of dependencies and things like, I don't I don't feel like there's been that much where I'm like, yes, I can absolutely like extract this out and open source it or do something like that. I felt um, like there's been small things from time to time, but they're more like, the lower level use cases that we can we can pull out and then uh, I don't know push those into a separate library or something. But yeah, and obviously I don't want to discourage people from contributing back to the community uh, because no, we, it's a good point. <laughs> but we I, all I, live I, on people generating their or donating their time and, and effort into this. Yeah, um, but I I do think like we need to yeah we need to support those those lower level libraries and we need to support the ecosystem and make sure that we have the components we need because we don't want to be reinventing the wheel all the time mm-hmm. right but i also i think pushing people too much down a path of like this is exactly how it should be done isn't right either because then you butt your heads against the the patterns that someone else is pushing on you mm-hmm. um, and i think that's worse because then your domain and like your logic starts to get lost in someone else's idea of what what it should look like, and you end up with like weird code where you're extending the thing because it didn't quite meet your needs, and actually that's worse. Like I, I think that's harder to understand than being more like explicit and being like this is exactly how we're modeling this. You know? Yeah, I mean we ran into trouble on a project um, based around a state machine library. Right. That yeah. um, I think there was pressure to pick something off the shelf, and we found a generic state machine library. Um, but then, as we discovered more about the domain, it ended up not being a good fit for our use case. But uh, we were sort of wedded to it. I think part of that is just um, legacy. You know, it's already there, and and there's pressure not to rip the thing out and start over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but we ended up really contorting ourselves, and it affected our business logic just to suit this um, state machine library, this small library, and the library was fine, but it wasn't, it was no longer appropriate for our use case. And yet here we were doing backflips to accommodate it. Mm, It was, yeah, I remember that very case. Like we ended up moving to just a bunch of functions, right? I think that was your refactor in the end. And it was like, we just used function heads to map the next transition state. And that worked really well. And it kept it nice and simple and like, yeah, like th- there's times where you do need to reach for the higher level, kind of more powerful library where you can do all of this stuff, right? Or, mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, it felt like that totally muddied the water with what we're trying to do. Yeah, if, if I had to summarize this for Mr. Cloud, who asked the question, uh, I would say don't worry about it and let it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, just let the patterns emerge and they will and you don't have to force it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think, um, yeah, keep, like, extract where, I think extract where it makes sense in in the same way that you would with different functions and uh, things like that, where it's like there's a lot of reuse. I like that, like, rule of thumb of three, three times, and then you extract. I think, like, obviously... Um, it can be a premature optimization to push out code where it, it isn't needed as a shared dependency or anything like that. And mm-hmm. it's actually cheaper to just keep it in one place. Um, duplication is cheaper than the wrong abstraction. Sandy yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're just calling functions. So yeah. you may as well just call the function you want instead of something over there that then redirects back to this that imports something else. 
Mm-hmm. Like, just do the thing. Pattern yeah. match on uh, a value. Call it a day. And hopefully it's always that simple. But <laughs> <laughs> All of my projects are that simple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so I think that's about all we've got time for today, right? Yeah, I think so. It's been a pretty good uh, pretty good episode back from our short break following the conferences. Yeah, we need to get back on the train of doing uh, regular recordings, so we'll, we'll try and make that happen, folks. Yeah, stay tuned for next time, and uh, meanwhile, be sure to check out the videos from MPEX LA and uh, submit your talk to MPEX NYC. Yeah, and then uh, we'll hope to, hope to see you all again soon. And if you have any questions for us, please reach out on Twitter or um, ask us a question on our GitHub repo, which is github.com slash elixirtalk slash elixirtalk. Great. So until next time, I'm Desmond. And I'm Chris. And uh, keep elixir. Keep elixiring.